Yeah, I I'm right there with you. I am I've just like come to terms with the fact that I'm not actually good at any other game. And I'm like not particularly good at magic either. I just like have played a lot of it and can talk about it better than I can do almost anything else in the world. So that's a pretty weird spot for me to be at, to be honest. Yeah, I cannot pretend to be anything close to like a self-actualized human being. I just play a lot of magic and talk a lot about magic. And that's that's where my life is at at this point. As I, uh, you know, um, fast veering up to 30. So that's where we're at. Yeah, but I mean, like, it's fun, <laughs> right? It's like a nice sure. thing to be pretty good at. See, so. when you were saying your I'm not good thing, I'm like, but it's, but it's fun. And that's, yeah. you know, just true. <laughs> that's why I like oh, yeah, doing no. stuff. Like, I play other games even though I'm not, like, great at them because they're fun. I'm not particularly good at any other video. I'm not great at, like, Smash, but I like playing Smash with my friends. So, Dom, any thoughts? Anything you want to touch on before recording? Um, Since, Lee, we're planning on releasing this episode on Friday, so that way Dom can be uncensored in this. Uncensored explicit content? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Friday's the day sure, we can say Sure, if that's fuck, what you want. So. <laughs> when do throw some uh, gaming moments in there if no, you want? Maybe not. Maybe <laughs> no gaming <laughs> moments, especially not heated ones. Heated gaming moments. Mild gaming moments. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Measured gaming moments. Oh, you. Oh, fiddlesticks. <laughs> <laughs> everyone welcome to episode 244 of the mtg grindcast the spikiest podcast in all of central north carolina we are your hosts i'm chris caster with me is lee mcleod hi chris hi i was waiting for a Haley, and then it's like hi chris but yeah. uh, I, I, we're just uh doing it live this time i guess yeah tom's here too i was gonna let you guys say hi <laughs> right. one at a time but see i didn't i didn't know if you wanted me to say hello or if you were gonna intro we've dom. done so this i was I so many times <laughs> dom's here hey dom hi guys yeah we're not redoing the intro this is all staying in no this that's not how po- podcasting works So Dom is here to talk to us about the upcoming set championship, the new Capenna set championship. So this is standard, historic, arena tournament. The last one of these, right? I think so. Yeah, I think there is going to be some form of arena OP that funnels into other forms of OP, but we don't quite know exactly what that's going to look like or or what vibe that's going to have until, I guess, the first one of those actually takes place, which means... Uh, we are going to have uh, qualifier weekends and so on coming up where no one's quite sure what they're qualifying for <laughs> in, in the end. But uh, I guess we cross that bridge when we get to it. Well, we do know about the like arena championship thing. The Yeah, yeah. That, you know, has money and is small. And then you also queue for the, the pro tours. But right now we're still in this like... I don't even know what iteration of the... Transitory period? Yeah, it is a transitory period. And whatever iteration of the organized play system led us to arena set championships that um people don't really care about enough for us to have an episode for each one but they're the closest thing to pro tours that we have so you know we're gonna just do an intro episode for each one and it gives us a chance to talk about standard and historic with somebody who actually worked hard and uh that's dom's job so dom i hope you i hope you worked hard 
I, I did. I, I don't know if that hard work is going to yield any uh, actual <laughs> results on my end, but uh, I guess check back on that in a few days. It, it is interesting that this is, I guess, the final tournament of this era of online OP, where if you think back to the start of COVID, uh, I played in the very first round of hmm. uh, online players tours where you had four of them spread over this time frame for like catering to different time zones. And then each of them had their own top eight. And it was just a real uh, shit show of, a, <laughs> of an experience. And it feels like in the two years since then, they have actually done a decent job of refining those tournaments and improving the experience for the players at the very least, but done a heinous job at generating outside bars for those tournaments. Where I think if you ask the average person who considers themselves invested in competitive magic, when is the next arena set championship? I don't know how many people would say, oh, it's it's Friday, right? I, I usually don't know until the week before because I'm looking for a topic for our podcast and go, oh yeah, we can talk about this. See, the only reason I know is because I follow people who are playing in right. the Pro Tour right, or the right. set championship. And it's like, oh, I guess that's happening soon. Because I'll, I'll get, yeah. it'll become increasingly panicked as time goes on. <laughs> <laughs> but even then, a lot of the people who you assume by default you would follow if you follow uh, the competitive Magic crowd, like the MPL and Rivals people and uh, and so on, most of them don't seem heavily invested in these tournaments. And the people who are really putting their nose to the grindstone and, and putting the hours in and for whom this this tournament has this like emotional resonance for them it's, it's the Zoomers who maybe should have been able to play in one of these before and got denied because of some age restriction, which no one has still provided an actual like legal basis or explanation for. And now that they're getting their shot, they're hungry for it and they're really taking it seriously. And it's great to see. And I'm cheering them on and I'm hoping they, they crush it this weekend. Uh, and that's, that's really as, I mean, I'm, I'm playing in the tournament. So my, my first rooting interest is myself, but more generally, <laughs> My rubric is, if you care about the tournament, I want you to do well. And if your brand is tweeting about how you don't know what any of the cards do, and this is the first time you're playing with your deck, and you're you're playing from, uh, I don't know, in between uh, yeah, on your at the phone gym or whatever. While watching <laughs> Doctor Strange or something like that. Yes, then I, I am rooting against you. Uh, it's nothing personal. <laughs> I mean, kind of is, but that's, uh, that's how I, I judge these things. No, I think that's fair. And I think it's been a real failing of the tournament maybe coverage as well that you just like the MPL came and went and you had very clear defined figures of who you're supposed to care about right uh, which was the only good thing about the MPL <laughs> and that died all the people in the MPL now almost as a whole do not care about these tournaments at all and that leaves all right who does care about these tournaments and we're just like never introduced to these people through coverage or like anything you'd watch the event for. Yeah, I do think they have done a decent job with the written coverage recently of mm -hmm. hyping up some of these storylines and introducing these players. And for, for this weekend, this is the final event of this era and of this season. And so there are wider stories here about the world's race, for example, and uh, who's going to qualify for that. And a lot of these storylines have been built up building to this conclusion. So there is more to work with in that sense for this tournament. And this one aspect of coverage is doing a good job there. But I don't know if it's kind of siloed off from the rest of it, where I'm sure they'll do a decent job on the broadcast itself of hyping, of hyping that up. But you can only do so much when none of that work has been put in in 
the weeks and months before then to make people care. And so, yeah, the the handful of people who are tuning into the tournament, maybe you'll do a good job of making them invested. But the people who aren't tuning in because they didn't even know there was a tournament this weekend and they had no reason to care if they did, well, they're, they're not going to care who's qualifying for Worlds via the top six challenger league positions or whatever. Like that, that all means nothing to them. Yeah, it doesn't. There's no like continuous coverage thing there's no like thing that you keep checking into or anything like that no weekly show or whatever that would help create hype for this it, it just like is something that pops up they can tell you the information but it's it's really hard to like contextualize it and and care but you know sounds like you did care at least about this tournament if you if you put in the work and you know it's important to you that other people care about it how how did your preparations go uh who who are you working with how did you feel about your prep process going into this uh before we get into the the formats themselves yeah i it was important to me because i felt if i had this opportunity then i may as well make the most of it especially when with this transition back to paper play First of all, I don't know when I'm going to get another shot at this form of competition. Mm -hmm. And also, this now has a gateway back to the paper photo, right. where if I, if I get the same record that I got at the last one here, uh, a 9 and 6 finish, which normally nothing to write home about, but the way that the system is set up, they need to seed the first Pro Tour so that that can then have enough people to start funneling people into the next ones. Um, that record gets you to the first paper pro tour of the new system. And so this is uh, a giant high stakes PTQ on top of whatever uh, inbuilt incentives this tournament has uh, for itself. So I am taking it seriously, uh, hoping to do well. Don't know how optimistic I am about my chances, uh, but I guess we'll get to the reasons for that over the course of the episode. So I prepared with uh, this, this, this dream team, which if you told me when I was following the, the paper pro tour years ago, you're going to get to prepare for something like this with these people. I would have been over the moon. So, you know, Paolo, uh, Vidor, Damito Rosa, who now that he himself is not as invested as he used to be, it's kind of fun to see him just like popping in to quiz people on why their ideas are so bad and then having to leave to go do some <laughs> other like actual real life commitment um, uh, before further testing. Yeah, a, a lot of really impressive names and then also people who i've kind of risen up through the trenches with and we're now trying to take our shot at that level of play so it's, it's a great squad to be working with as for how i feel about our preparation or my preparation i honestly don't know this was a very odd tournament to prepare for and when i knew that i had two of these queued up so i played in the the neon dynasty championship uh where i you spoke to uh, justin Gennari about his uh, preparation for that one um and now this one too, I was wondering how much continuity is it gonna be between those two experiences? And one of the formats in Historic uh, is it's on the docket for both of them. You don't know if it's gonna be the same format for both of them, not to jump ahead. I think Historic basically is gonna be roughly the same as you saw last time, uh, sadly. Um, but then, you know, the, the last one of these was kind of an odd experience in retrospect. So maybe this just is an odd experience. Maybe you can never get fully comfortable with what it takes to prepare for one of these tournaments. And maybe that's the point. Like maybe that's why it remains an interesting puzzle, even for the people who have played dozens of these at this point. What What do you think makes it so odd? Is it the, like, like is this odder than 
you know, just a, a regular pro tour would be? Is it because of the historic format or is it just like preparing for this high level tournament with a relatively limited field of all good players? Like what's what's so strange here? So some of it is the, the split format. So just having two formats to prepare for, naturally there's a question of how do you divvy up your time between the two of these? And then one of these in historic is a fairly known quantity, mm -hmm. but then do you just lock that in early and devote all of your time as much as possible to standard? Or do you see if there really is an edge to be gained on the edges of historic that no one else is really paying attention to? And even even counting historic as a known quantity, since there's no data about the format, it's it's like hard to pin down even once you feel like, okay, I understand this thing. Right. And you, you always have the freedom to ignore that one if you want to, whereas... Uh, as the paper Pro Tour returns and it's split format, constructed and limited, and presumably it's going to be, you know, uh, standard, pioneer, modern, just after the release of a new set, and then this brand new limited format, you don't really get to ignore either one of those. You have to uh, put some effort in over here and then some effort in over there. There are people, I think, for this tournament who will run back 70, 71 of the same cards from their historic deck from last time and just focus relentlessly on standard and i don't think that's necessarily a bad idea <laughs> for the most part sure i mean that's it's kind of analogous to what people do for the old modern pro tours right which is why there was so many like shake-up bannings because they just didn't want people to play this index all the time which yeah is why Paula, I, like famously always played just guy control right you never <laughs> got hit by any bannings it was always the same deck <laughs> yeah and it never needed to have anything banned because it was just uh, solidly unplayable at every one of these uh tournaments but oh yeah I think that the, the modern Pro Tour, there was this interesting question around it of what's the chicken and what's the egg? You know, are we making these bands in order to freshen up the modern Pro Tour or is the modern Pro Tour ideally meant to be the showcase of a new format? And if it's not a new format to begin with, then it, it's failing at that fundamental purpose. Uh, but either way, the end result was usually you got a modern Pro Tour that looked very different from the previous modern Pro Tour a year ago or two years ago. And I was hoping the historic would kind of be the analogy to modern or like old, big extended or something like that, where it's, it's a massive format and there have been lots of cards just randomly dumped into it that, with no apparent rhyme or reason. And so it seems like there should be some kind of diamond in the rough to be found that just no one has... Uh, uncovered yet and uh, as you mentioned Chris no one really has a reason to try and uncover because mm -hmm. the way these incentives work like there are no big historic tournaments to to play in other than these or other than the PTQs that qualify for these and the way the arena economy is set up if you have some eureka moment in the shower if you want to actually put that into practice and test that idea well that's going to cost you a lot of wild cards and you really have to think rigorously about whether this is a good use of your time and money so there's really no incentive for that exploration to take place. And so I almost want to be blindsided when the deck lists are revealed on Friday by what my opponent has shown up to the historic portion with. But I don't know how realistic that is, not just because the format itself is kind of stagnated at this point, but also because the incentives just aren't there for any of that work to have happened in the past. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And, and you know, you mentioned, Lee mentioned shakeup bannings. Like the last like big deal thing to happen in historic really was the memory lapse ban which was prior to the last arena set championship and we're kind of like still defined by yep memory lapse being banned is like the last big thing there's some new cards but historic is such a powerful format with 
you know, Faithless Looting, Arclight Phoenix kind of like leading the way and and kind of like bonkers stuff you're allowed to do that a lot of stuff just can't really compete with the power level going on there. Yeah, uh, we did have uh, Neon Dynasty actually contributing a decent amount in terms of new cards and we'll, we'll get to some of those, I'm sure. We did also have this injection of new cards and new cards in a whole other sense via alchemy, mm-hmm. right? And and this is the bugbear of the arena subreddit or just like casual chatter around uh, arena is that, well, these cards have ruined historic. And for the most part, I thought these people are living in a totally different universe from the rest of us, where you look at the results of actual historic tournaments and the highest placing alchemy card is like the one Cursebound Rich in the main deck of one of the food decks or something. <laughs> And outside of this brief era where uh, Inquisitor Captain, with the initial wording, uh, you could chain it together with Glasspool Mimics and Flicker Effects and so on. And that actually was a good historic deck for a hot minute. And the format quickly uh, had to adapt to that. That got cut down to size. And so the re-alchemized version of this initial alchemy card now just doesn't really have a home. Or maybe it does, and uh, more on that in a bit. I I am in the the weird position for this tournament of... I am actually more affected by any of those people or any of my competitors, I think, by these alchemy nerfs, even though, for the most part, <laughs> I don't think alchemy is a thing that actually affects historic in any kind of tangible way. But um, for some people, that is crossing a barrier. You know, having these cards which don't actually exist in paper being put into this format, that is crossing a line for them, even though this format itself is maybe more contrived than any other, right? There's no natural starting point here. It's just these are all the cards on Arena and some cards which we decided to put on Arena so they could be in Historic Mm -hmm. with the hopes of spicing that up. So in that sense, there shouldn't be any sense of uh, these are the valid Historic cards and these aren't. But uh, for some people, that distinction is is real and, uh, and pretty sharp. The criticism that lands more with me is on the, like... Alchemy nerfs being persistent through historic, so like Goldspand Dragon will never be a thing that you can consider putting into a historic deck when otherwise, like maybe you could. Like that that's the thing that bugs me. The you know, the digital only designs, like, yeah, of course, if if you're gonna make them at all, they certainly should be in historic and seems fine and does not seem like they're defining the format in a way that's like pushing out the quote real magic cards or anything. I am pretty unbothered by their existence. Yeah, its main impact on the format is via subtraction, if anything. It's taking cards which either have had success in the format or could potentially have success and diluting them to the point where no one would entertain the thought of putting them in the deck anymore. So yeah, if you loved the the Mutate deck in Standard, right, or any of the various uh, Goldspan Dragon uh, combo decks throughout the last few Standard formats, and you want to see what can I do with this card in the historic card pool? Well, the answer is nothing because the card just doesn't function in that way anymore. The, the, the one thing, that, like the one hook that drew you in no longer exists. Or to use a depressingly relevant example, uh, my standard deck for this tournament contains Luminarch Aspirant mm-hmm. and <laughs> my historic deck for this tournament very much would like to contain Luminarch Aspirant, but I have to play with the Power Down version and that card is nowhere close to a... Uh, a playable card in standard, let alone historic. And so I'm not quite sure why there's that incongruity there, but it is. And I am feeling very (laughs) unnerved about it. Yes. No, yeah. Looking at your, just spoiler alert, this is Selesnya Humans in in historic and baby, 
Luminarc Aspirant. That Esper Sentinel into Luminarc Aspirant curve would be real nice if you were allowed to do that. Yeah, and taking that card out of the deck has these cascading implications where those those marginal one-drops, which maybe don't really make the cut otherwise, but just that idea of one-drop into Aspirant, that's such a powerful curve. You want to maximize your odds of doing that. And so you take some of the one-drops out of the deck, you lose access to one of the, the marquee two-drops. So how do you fill out the rest of your curve now? And you, you need to rethink the entire way that the deck has to operate. Sure. Well, I mean, we could, since we have been like talking about historic, we could just talk about that format. I have them listed standard and historic, but it really doesn't matter. Since historic is, you you said, pretty similar to how it's been before, maybe it is a quicker thing to talk about. So we could go ahead and hit that first. Yeah. So I think if you ask people who have not been keeping up with the format recently, but have tuned in here and there in the past, what are the big historic decks? They would tell you, uh, food of some kind, whether it's just straight black green with Lurus or, or John food, something like that. Uh, is it Phoenix? And then control of some kind. And I think there's going to be probably the three most popular uh, broad archetypes, uh, again, just like they were at uh, Neon Dynasty. Um, so in that sense, the format hasn't changed too much. However, if you go back to the Innistrad Championship, one of the more popular decks there and one of the least successful decks that actually was humans, which had this massive target on its back and really floundered there. And so since then, that deck has been stripped of one of its best cards. All the other decks in the format have received these great new tools. And so despite all of that, I'm playing the deck that is now, you know, the, the is being like capsized in the sinking tide there. So why? is that, yes, why Dom? <laughs> why are you playing this deck? I'll bite. So I, I think the, the realization that got some of us interested here was that Esper Sentinel is like a really good card in this format right now, where uh, it's pretty obvious to say Esper Sentinel is good against Phoenix, is good against Control. Even the other decks trying to exploit Esper Sentinel in that way, so Auras, uh, the uh, the Affinity deck that uh, Depraz uh, top-aided with last time, which uh, gained a lot of buzz just because it was something new, more so than anything else, uh, all of those decks are also pretty spell-heavy. Uh, so. When you get to the point where Esper Sentinel is good against the creature decks, as well as the conventional spell decks, at that point, it's a card that you're looking for an excuse to put in your deck and to try and maximize in some way or another. And if Esper Sentinel is that good, Thardia seems really good. Uh, and the other Sentinel decks, because of the facts that I've just mentioned, don't really get to play Thardia. And so if Sentinel is good and Thardia is really good, well, Ranger Captain of Eos starts to look pretty good as well, where you're... Uh, disabling their ability to participate in the game for a turn while also you're getting some marginal card advantage, you're finding some silver bullet. Uh, and so that that core package looks really appealing. And then the question is, how do you fill out the rest of the deck with other humans? That's no longer a trivial question because Aspirant is gone and a lot of the supporting cast for Aspirant is gone. But it turns out that there are a lot of good humans in the historic card ball that you get to uh, fill out your deck with. And one of those is Inquisitor Captain. Mm -hmm. So this actually is one of the alchemy cards, which had to be neutered in its own way uh, to cut it down to size. But in its current form, where it's basically uh, three and a white for a three, three vigilance, when it ETBs, if you have, I think it's 20 creature cards with mana value three or less between uh, your hand, library, and graveyard, then one of those from your library gets put into play, or you get the choice of two of those and you get to put one of them into play for free, essentially, which I'm not explaining it well and it's weirdly hard to pass in the <laughs> way that yes. most of the alchemy cards actually are. Most people, know. 
<laughs> it's like a successful collected company most of the time, basically. It's just that one of the things you get is a 3-3. Yeah, so th this deck is basically eight ersatz collected companies, including uh, the original one, um, and then just a bunch of powerful humans which can just be a nuisance for the opponent or just lock out the opponent from participating in the game in a meaningful way uh, sometimes. So to me... It sounds like you're describing death and taxes. <laughs> yeah, it, this is basically. Are you uh, bringing death and taxes to the pro tour? <laughs> when you, oh God, when you put it like that. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's not white weenie. You know the the one drops are Esper Sentinels and then one hopeful initiate, one dauntless bodyguard. So I think that removes you from the consideration as a white weenie deck, and I I would definitely think this is close. You know. <laughs> yeah. Well. Well. If you look back to uh, alchemy uh, at the Neon Dynasty Championship. This is basically the white aggro deck that we played in that tournament, mm -hmm. which was not that aggressive because we, I think we had six one drops total in, in that version there. Uh, and some people had uh, even fewer. Um, and that was more of a uh, a kind of tactical mid-range deck. We were trying to just like pin them, uh, disrupt their ability to do their thing and apply pressure in the meantime, kind of in the way that the modern humans deck uh, is, is wanted to as well. Sure. This is a, maybe a silly question, but I noticed that Skyclave Apparition is not a human, and yet you are playing it over Brutal Cathar in your like three-mana removal creature slot. There's just a lot of stuff in the format where you want this permanent answer to, and even when those are creatures, there is a big difference between, uh, you know, if whatever that three drop is is going to die somehow, which it is likely to do against you know, Phoenix, for example, and their, their big stack of Unholy Heats and, and so on, you would much rather give them back a textless 1-1 one, one than a Dragon's Rave Channel or, uh, you know, a 2-2 two, two token that doesn't do anything instead of a Ledger Shredder now is uh, is the hot new thing there. And that's just kind of true across the board. And against like the Food Decks, for example, which are a pretty tricky matchup, really the only one that we're uh, that worried about, being able to answer a, a big Ravenous Squirrel or take down the Witch's Oven, take down the Trailer Crumbs or the Meat Hook Massacre uh, is, is pretty big and one of the ways you can steal a game there. Yeah, Aberration can take apart Cat Combo where Brutal Cathar just doesn't do anything to that. So, you know, you mentioned that, you know, the, the three big decks from before are likely the three big decks still some sort of some flavor of control food phoenix if if you don't mind we can just like run through each of those quickly to talk about the state of those decks and you know why you didn't choose each of them or you know how how close they were to your consideration i think phoenix is generally the most defined of those decks well i mean i guess food is pretty well defined at this point too but phoenix is is known and uh, so how? what are your feelings on that deck and its place in the metagame? And also, do we think the Hidetsugu Saga tech is like the go-to for the food matchup? Or are there some other answers there? It's, it's a really good deck. It was uh, the best deck last time for a reason. And I, I guess for many reasons. And one of those is inertia. Uh, and that's always something to keep in mind here. Where if there just aren't that many tournaments and you're someone who doesn't play Historic and maybe did not have the arena client downloaded until you won your uh, Modo PTQ or whatever, mm -hmm. and you ha you have to pick a historic deck, this is a very safe choice and one which you know you can kind of take to the bank. Uh, so that that's going to be part of it for some people. But you do also see some of the people at the top of the game and their game picking Phoenix because it's, it's a really good deck. Yeah, it was the CFB deck last time, so... Yeah, it was uh, the most popular deck then and i expect it to be even more popular now actually um but one of the weird stories coming out of the last tournament was 
everybody knew the Phoenix was going to be the most popular deck. And that was one of the things that held me back from playing Control, because I think you start fundamentally behind in the Phoenix matchup. And in order to get that to a reasonable position, you have to mangle your main deck and your sideboard so much that now you're losing traction uh, in other places. And so even though everyone knew that, a lot of people showed up to the tournament with Control and predictably uh, took their beatings uh, from Phoenix. So going into this tournament where the same information is public, essentially, I don't know what the next step is going to be in that process for those people. The, the Japanese squad who showed up with Control last time, do they now go full circle and go back to food? Are they going to go on to Phoenix? Uh, are people who played Phoenix last time going to step off it and go towards something else? Uh, is, there's this really kind of weird iterated game going on, which I guess this is the final iteration of. Um, so we'll, we'll get to see that in action here. But the the Phoenix core is just fantastic. And now Ledger Shredder, I think, is the most hyped card, uh, certainly for Historic, uh, coming out of Streets of New Capenna. And it slots so seamlessly into Phoenix. It does so many of the things that you want the card in that slot to do um, that yeah, I would be stunned if it's anything less than like 20, 25% of, of the tournament here. Shredder's been making waves in basically every single format. I'm kind of living for Justin's vintage posts uh, <laughs> with Le Ledger Shredder four of in his vintage decks and people, you know, chatting him. Why does that trigger off of my spells? So, so yeah, definitely a fantastic card that transforms a lot of what the deck is capable of doing you can easily kill somebody with a ledger shredder while there's a rest in peace in play and uh, it just solves a lot of your problems there's uh there's also this i guess self-perpetuating aspect of the card where because it is symmetrical and it triggers off both player spells if you think that 30 percent of the room mm. is going to be showing up with a deck that's trying to cast three spells in the same turn to get back its arc like phoenix having your own ledger shredders sounds like a pretty good response to that <laughs> dynamic, yeah. right? Um, so if Shredder is good in one deck, it gets even better in that deck for the mirrors as well as all the other decks. And at that point, you just have this entire flock of ledger shredders, uh, you know, uh, flying around the uh, the tournament hall. And when your ledger shredders are like five sevens, you can like block a Phoenix and then there's just not really anything they can do. They can't kill it. They can't finish it off. It still has like four toughness left. Uh, I mean, if it's a 2-4, it's blocking an Archive Phoenix and right, uh, right. forcing another card out of them as well. So uh, even if the Shredder itself ends up dying, you've you forced a lot of resources mm -hmm. and time and effort potentially to get that thing uh, off the board. So yeah, I expect Phoenix with or without, but mostly with Ledger Shredder to be a big player. And then as for the, the Black Splash that uh, CFB showed up with last time, that was an inventive solution to the food matchup and a radical one. I don't know how effective it is ultimately, and it, it does lead to real sacrifices in your mana base, where I think they were playing four uh, black pathways in their deck that also had things like a Crackling Drake, where if you ever have this errant black pathway in the first few turns, then just casting your Crackling Drake, it seems like a, a very remote possibility. And then because you just have so few sources of mana that can cast this sideboard card, you're effectively trying to assemble this two-card combo, which you're the deck with the most card selection in the format. You can actually do that when the game goes long. Uh, but if you're ever stuck with a Hidetsugu consumes all in your hand that you can't cast, you then the drawbacks become very apparent mm -hmm. very quickly. And so I don't know if, you know, if the card legitimately did win the game in the matchup by itself, then maybe that would be worth it. I don't think it's anywhere close to that. And so I would just stay focused, stay in it, and 
you know, just just play your game, and I, I think you're you're fine gotcha. just, uh, doing that. Um, on the crackling Drake point, though, uh, you are less incentivized to have crackling Drakes in your deck when you do have access to Ledger Shredders. So uh, there's just a little bit of a meta base consideration. But I totally hear what you're saying. Yeah, that that was uh, actually one of the things which might be less interesting now because previously you had these flex slots in your phoenix deck for more threats you you wanted just two or three additional creatures to work their way in there but there was no clear consensus on what those should be so yeah you could go up to crackling drakes you could play more sprite dragons and keep your curve lean uh you could load up on storming entities because that's that's really good in the food matchup uh you could play you know one brazen borrower a, a cheeky bow crusher giant over here uh and, and now i think there might be some consolidation on that front to yeah. yeah people just play four ledger shredder and and don't think any more about it just, yeah two mana giant flyer looting machine probably outshines most of those cards most of the time the food decks are you Wait, know hold, hold on. oh sorry let me let me let me cut in real quick because i want to ask we just talked about how good phoenix is for a while now yeah. yep yep why aren't you playing phoenix like is it just a case of was the deck missing something or was the the humans deck you ended up on just what you're trying to attack the format by i don't quite know honestly uh in testing i often ended up as the villain playing phoenix i was the test dummy for other people trying to see if their deck could pass that basic litmus test and when i played the phoenix deck uh it, it took a little bit to acclimatize myself to the phoenix play pattern in general you know when that deck was the big thing in modern that didn't really come naturally to me. I was not able to get the uh, the best deck results with it that other people were getting. And this version in Historic, you have this different set of tools, right? You you can be more explosive with your channelers and your fatal slootings, but then there are some other weaknesses that you have to compens uh, compensate for in other ways. And so once I adjusted to the deck, I was pretty impressed by it. And if I didn't find anything better, I would not have felt embarrassed to, to lock it in myself. The Phoenix Mirror is an interesting animal that I wasn't quite sure how to get uh, an edge in. And then the human deck that I ended up playing, I selected in large part because it was doing quite well against Phoenix uh, for us. And then because Phoenix has such a big target, some of the tools which people were turning to before, like just Graveyard Hate, for example, food is not naturally great against Phoenix, but just adding those two soul guide lanterns that you saw in all the phoenix or all the food main decks last time unlicensed hearse is a, a new addition to that roster too if people want to just load up on graveyard hate and have enough removal for the stuff that slips through the cracks that's a pretty good recipe against phoenix that's that's quite hard to overturn and everyone knew that and everyone was going to show up with that and so you, you got to be confident in your ability to to fight through that hate the food decks are they very have they seemed very similar to what we saw last time these Luris meat hook massacre low to the ground squirrel decks uh or have you seen any new tech no that that's basically it and uh the, the deck that i played in historic last time was that deck foregoing Luris to get to play uh corvold right. like this big trump in in the mirrors and, and some other matchups i don't think that was a a strict improvement or anything and uh, my my teammates who played stock black green food all did uh, very well for themselves and th this deck is another point of divergence in the community i think where within our team we have people who lost a lot to the deck of the industry championship picked it up before the the neon dynasty championship and you know they were winning ptqs winning other events and then did very well at that tournament and nothing has really come out to make them 
dealt that choice from last time. And so we had people joking, yeah, we're just going to play 74 <laughs> or 75 even with the same cards uh, in this tournament too. And there was this weird interlude where uh, Painful Bond just got dropped into the format with the Neon Dynasty Alchemy set, which was not legal in Alchemy at the Neon Dynasty Championship for reasons which still elude and, and baffle me. Uh, but that was a card which really seemed like it was going to juice up uh, the food decks and like the Arcanist decks and just black mid-range in general. And then one of the very out-of-the-blue announcements in the past few weeks leading up to this tournament was, oh, by the way, we're nerfing that card and like flipping around the text on it and which spells it, it checks for because it was, it was too powerful. Mm-hmm. And so... Now, it's almost like you don't even have to choose how many copies of that to run in your deck. You just get to run back your list from last time and uh, you're good to go. <laughs> Maybe a couple unlicensed hearses as a treat. Yeah, I mean, that that card is has proven so good against not just Phoenix, but like, is it Murktide in Modern or is it Delver in Legacy that, yeah, you're going to try that in basically the sideboard of any deck because it's a colorless hate piece, which uh, has aspirations to do a lot more as well. Yeah, of tenning your opponent twice or something like that. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, the, uh, the the food deck, I, I personally, I'm not quite sure why it's still allowed to exist in terms of the the play patterns, which are heinous to watch on coverage. Uh, you, you go back and look at the uh, the the top eight from the Innistrad Championship and the, the the Japanese team, who, to their credit, took the tournament by storm. But because they did that, the top eight was a lot of food mirrors, and you you can see just the the life draining from the eyes of the commentators as they had to <laughs> try and just fill the air uh, as, as all of that was happening. It's miserable to play against, and and that's been the case since Throne of Eldraine. And at this point. Some form of cat oven deck, some some food deck, some sacrifice deck is the longest standing historic archetype. Mm-hmm. You know, all the way back from the days of uh, Uro and Nyssa being like the, the big thing in the format, uh, the, the Omnath moment that lasted a week or two, all the way through you know the Mystical Archive and the several successive rounds of bands that had to come out of that. The, the one kind of cockroach that has survived all of those changes has been the food deck. And uh, if it was a more fun deck to play against or watch, maybe that would be a good thing. But at some point, maybe there's a sign that uh, something has to change there. I know there was a perhaps semi-conspiratorial discussion on Twitter today about is there some like game-length performance indicator where, hey, if you have to play against food, there's a lot of clicking, a lot of game actions, and yeah, the average length of a game is a lot longer, but not for any reasons that you're going to be happy about. (laughs) The, the engineers just really like the food deck. They like seeing it on coverage all the time. <laughs> I, I mean, hey, there, there is a a certain mindset. Uh, if you really like uh, like min-maxing and optimizing all of these small sequencing things, if you like that, you're going to love the food deck. But that is a, uh, a, a twisted perversion that should not be encouraged by forces up on high. It's also something you can do with other decks. Like, I, I like the food deck, but I could also just play Phoenix to do a, like, a lesser version of that. Yeah, I mean, playing like uh, food mirrors as uh, bullet magic or blitz magic has like this weird appeal to it for me as well. But it, it it also gets old past a certain point. I think we're ready for something new in terms of like the fundamental core of this format by now. If you're like every turn, the like just starts with your rope starting and you're just like in panic mode the entire time. Mm-hmm. There was a oh, it, there was a Hearthstone card that did that in like the first Hearthstone set. <laughs> yeah, it was Dormu. Yes. Uh, 
that's how magic arena should work in general in my opinion. <laughs> you got 15 seconds use them no extension for additional triggers or anything like that just go 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 yeah i uh so the last round of day one at neon dynasty i was queued up for a food mirror against uh, my teammate then uh, nathan Stoyer, and we were selected for a feature match and both of us had to request to decline it because <laughs> with the additional lag of streaming to discord and mm. then just the general performance issues with arena and so on the, the food mirrors very often go to time that, that's often how they are decided and the idea of having to navigate that on hard mode on camera while it might it might legitimately come down to who has a better you know processor in their laptop or who has a better internet connection that, that did not appeal to either one of us and so they they gave us the ability to decline that but they were very clear this is not standard procedure and if you ask us again we reserve the right to say no Ugh. <laughs> yeah not an ideal deck if it leads to that sort of decision making process but no food deck registered for you in this tournament so you won't have to deal with that you probably don't have to decline any any coverage playing mono white tax your cantrips just to briefly go over because you know we spent a healthy amount of time talking about historic now but just to briefly go over the control decks where do you think those are headed now is this still like a main deck rest in peace kind of format uh, do you think it is like pretty wild to register a control deck in this format or what, what were your conclusions about those so that was the one big new development coming out of the, the the last tournament was the Japanese squad who you didn't actually see crack through to the top eight because they all sank their alchemy chances by playing runes. <laughs> um, but in Historic, they actually had the best win rate collectively with this uh, blue-white Yorion uh, control deck. It turns out that some of that might just be they are a lot of the best players in the tournament and so you should expect whatever deck they choose to have a high win rate because when we applied our efforts to this deck ourselves we just weren't really beating anything with it <laughs> we weren't quite sure what the matchups were that we wanted to get uh, paired against and the obvious answer there was food and that might be why they went to it last time around is after they had kind of warped the format in their own image by doing so well with this food deck the next step is well we're going to break it again and beat the people who just net decked us from before <laughs> and uh and play this control deck uh, but even that matchup is it's very time-consuming. Once again, you even though it's favored, I think for control, you have to have a a quick mouse finger to to get uh, that match done mm. uh, within your rope. And then it's just kind of an exhausting deck to play. You don't really get any free wins in the same way that basically every other deck in the format does. And so after you know, we, we tried to do our due diligence and test this deck, but uh, ultimately we weren't quite sure what would motivate someone to pick it up. Especially now knowing once again, Phoenix is going to be everywhere at this tournament that was tough before it's it's tougher now even though there's some weird like your narset is even better against them now because they have to connive with their ledger shredder and so you can just make them like chug cards <laughs> into the void by playing your own spells uh but outside of that it's just it, it just seemed like such an uphill battle that uh if you're a control diehard then i think it's it's a respectable choice but we had control diehards on our team and none of them were interested in playing a control deck. Sure. That's that's part of the virtue of having a a large team and a team with a wide range of kind of proclivities and, and tendencies where like if the person who as a default is showing up with control is not showing up with control, 
sometimes it's good to just trust their work and, and not bother with that yourself. Yep. Makes perfect sense to me. Anything else that you want to say about Historic? Any, like, cards that have impressed you? Any, like, Kamigawa cards that are now making an appearance or anything like that? Or shall we move on to Standard? I, I just... I, I don't know. I, I want to love Historic, and I think there is a the, the the germ of something good there in the chaos. Like part of the appeal to me is there's no there are no clear rules or parameters to this format. It's just stuff. Here are the cards. Just go nuts. Do, do your do your thing. And it's like one of the randomizer tournaments. To, yeah, I don't know a lot of the ways. Yeah. <laughs> and and as a spectator, that period last year where the mystical archive had just come out, and it was very clear. Many of these cards are on borrowed time, but but before then, you're going to get to watch the format with Tainted Pact, Time Warp, Brainstorm, Memory Lapse, uh, and for as long as that lasts, <laughs> you know, do, do it while you can. That was very fun as a spectator and very fun if you knew which of those to play on any given weekend. Probably not great for the long-term health of the format, but if it's stagnating in this form instead, I don't know if that's any any better in the long term. Yeah, perhaps the like print more bannable cards approach would have been the like better for the overall like watchability and enjoyment of historic than banning the bannable cards just like create more monsters rather than than killing off the ones you already have it's a little weird right because in order to watch historic you don't want it to be the same format every time so it needs to have like churn of some kind mm-hmm. which is going to be bannings or like powerful cards but it's also like one of the very few formats on Arena that just like stays the same so you can actually afford to play it. Yeah. <laughs> Which is appealing from a I'm playing Arena perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm. And it's really hard to balance those two things. Yeah, those are I, two pretty different goals. I, I think it does have some of the, you, you know, we, we mentioned that difference between modern as like an LGS format and then modern as a high stakes competitive format where even when modern at its most cutthroat is in a is in a, a dire place modern at your lgs level where people are just playing the deck that's their pattern project and their favorite can still be pretty fun pretty engaging i think historic has some of that and does need to have some of that at the same time it, it makes some of the issues that are there even more frustrating so with pioneer right people comment all the time that the difference between the allied mana fixing and the enemy mana fixing really warps what's possible in the format in the sense where like if you had just Rage Verge Thicket or Copperline Gorge or something, think how different that format would look. The same thing is true of Historic on Arena, but in paper, you want those cards in Pioneer. Well, they have to go through a standard legal set, first of all, and that process is going to take time. So even if that was greenlit today, it might take 18 months before you see those cards in a new frame with new art or whatever. In Historic, I mean, the, the other part of that cycle is already coded in the platform. They could put those in overnight if they wanted to and completely revitalize this format. But it's just, I don't know if it's inertia or what, but we haven't actually seen that kind of mm-hmm. here are some new cards go wild in, in so long now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens with Historic. Uh, we'll see if it gets like de-emphasized given the existence of Explorer now which, uh, (laughs) you know, they're going to make into a real thing, even while it's not quite Pioneer. Our next qualifier season, at a minimum, is going to be the Explorer format. Well, let let me uh, ask you guys about that then, because I I would love to play more Pioneer on another platform, but I almost think that in this, this early nascent state, having a format that is missing enough cards that it does feel different, and it is new, 
that might be kind of the ideal thing to start with rather than, you know, some like replica of Pioneer, which is missing just enough that it's not quite Pioneer, but it's still just like a pale imitation of Pioneer at the same time. Yeah, I'm not like the most familiar with Explorer. I haven't really played it yet. I am looking forward to getting into it next month in earnest in in preparation for the qualifier stuff which actually i should probably start sooner than that because the qualifier stuff (laughs) is like in the middle of the month next month for some reason Mm i i think explorer is good like i think it's a good way to stop making the alchemy nerfs and buffs Mm -hmm. affect so much Mm -hmm. because it's a format that's designed to emulate kind of real magic or paper magic i guess is a better way to say it now that we mention it why wasn't this tournament explorer instead of historic i mean that that seems like it would solve everyone's problems there at the same time while also being a a great debut a great showcase for this new format that in theory you want people to to be excited about i mean i think they probably snap their fingers and make it that today or something but at the time they were planning this i bet Mm -hmm. they were like yeah who knows what this is gonna be and they did have to ban wynota so probably not yeah and they had to do that recently enough that it would have been a (laughs) tough thing to do like they probably wouldn't have been able to do that prior to this this tournament so also when you're talking about razor verse thicket and copperline gorge uh my thoughts immediately jumped away (laughs) oh god yeah well you You brought up those two specifically (laughs) i I mean seacrum coast and and well the ones ones that cast letter elves and elvish mystic are generally the ones you really want yeah, everyone loves Razor Verge Thicket in Modern. <laughs> look, if you look at my uh, my mana base, my green-white humans deck in Historic, there are some... We're jumping through some hoops to cast our spells, let me tell you. Yeah. And uh, I, I would I would slaughter my firstborn for, for a Razor Verge Thicket. <laughs> but are, are you guys reading between the lines here where if Winota gets axed that quickly in Explorer, are you thinking that's going to carry through to Paper Pioneer at some point before that format gets played a lot in earnest? I don't. I think the first set of regional championships will go through before uh, Wynota really gets any hate directed towards it. Uh, just because I think Wizards takes a little while to do these things for paper play. But if Wynota starts winning literally every challenge, I guess, on in the Pioneer challenges online, then then maybe could, something could change. But I don't, I don't really see it anything changing for the first like season or so till August. Pioneer is in a I mean, this is so off topic now, but Pioneer is in a really odd spot where like all the decks are pushed to be like the extreme versions of their archetypes. Like they're they're all like at the bounds, like the ramp deck has an infinite, like has the biggest end game in the world, which is in like a 14 mana infinite combo. The aggro deck is just like all the cheapest things imaginable. And then it just like kills you on turn four by casting a four mana creature. Uh, you know, like everything is like taken to such extremes. It's a very odd place right now. Yeah, maybe it's reaching that inevitable tipping point where as a format expands over time, and if, if you want to have an eternal format, that's all that can happen, right? It's not going to rotate. Mm-hmm. So the cardboard goes from when Pioneer was introduced, it was seven years or thereabouts, and now it's going on a decade, and then that's going to grow over time. You're going to end up with these more refined versions of of these archetypes and more redundancy on these core effects and eventually something in there is going to break and hopefully you can deal with that break quickly enough and just restore some order and it's not too bad but like you you know that's going to happen and so does that mean that there's going to be some like mini pioneer down the line and is is explorer that like is that Mm -hmm. where we're headed or 
is paper also going to have its own like knockoff where we keep like bisecting the timeline of how long the format lasts every few years just to uh, avoid this uh, yeah. spiraling out of control. Yeah, I mean, because when you think about it, like modern does a really similar thing. Like every modern deck is mm. just like a the purest form of this that you can possibly find. The aggro deck is, you know, one drop creatures, Eidolon of the Great Revel and, and 20 burn spells. Like the, the, the ramp decks literally win by putting lands into play. And like that's that's their top end is like this ramp this giant ramp creature and more lands like the combo decks combo you very hard and that's all they're concerned with doing. So I I think that that's probably pretty much the case. We don't necessarily have that to the same extent in Legacy, but that's because Legacy is policed by Wasteland and Days and Force of Will. So that's a whole other sort of situation. <laughs> And brainstorm. And that's brainstorm. A, that's a huge policing factor. Yes, yes, it just yes. doesn't literally police anything. Right. It doesn't. Yes. It doesn't actually stop anything, but it allows you to do your thing. But anyways, these are probably topics for like a long form contemplative episode rather than in the middle of our uh, set championship discussion chat with Don. Yes. I do love talking about this stuff though. But to standard. So last time I checked in on standard. It seemed to be kind of the most mid-range stewish format that I think I've ever seen in standard. There, you know, I I posted about how there was an average of like over seven planeswalkers per deck in the top eight of like the first weekend of challenges. Uh just it is cast things that affect the board and give card advantage and pick your like three colors with your favorite pieces for each of like the the CMC slots in your deck. And, and was a little bit of a, a stew at that point. How, how how much more defined are we than that? And is there any, you know, sort of alternative? Is that what the format still is? Or is there a different way of addressing it right now? I think that was the consensus uh, before Streets came out. I, I remember watching uh, Misplaced Ginger stream some of the standard challenges. And it was just, just these mid-range decks taking 14 turns to throw these socks full of pennies at each other it was a, a true a true slugfest and uh yeah he is very good at navigating those and so he had a lot of success there but uh it really was a case of like okay you can play one way and and that's it it seemed like at first streets was only going to double down on that so yeah maybe your black white mid-range deck picks up a third color and now yes, now it's an Esper mid-range deck, uh, and it's competing with the the Grixis mid-range decks over here, and the John mid-range decks over here, and it's going to be more of the same. And if that's what you're into, great. And if it's not, then uh, we've got five other uh, fake formats for you uh, <laughs> to sink your teeth into. At the same time, my team specifically, once again, was kind of existing off in a different universe, where for all the talk about mid-range decks. For us, the story of Standard was a combo deck that would warm Lee's uh, heart. If you want to be taking lots of game actions and uh, making boatloads of mana and uh, storming off uh, in the course of a single turn, you can do that in the Standard format. And uh, we had uh, following uh, CFT Sock, who if, if you know, you know that this is someone who has really kind of kept Constructed Magic interesting for me <laughs> over the past few months. Uh, someone who always is finding new ways to do stupid things with Goldspan Dragon. Their latest development was if you pair Goldspan Dragon with Show of Confidence, uh, this is the card from Strixhaven where it's one and a white for an instant. You put a plus one, plus one counter on target creature and it gains vigilance uh, until end of turn. So, uh, and then you copy it for each instant or sorcery you've played 
prior to that in the turn. So a fairly unassuming card, which you can do some cool, like, aggressive Magecraft stuff with in, in Limited and Constructed. When you pair that with Goldsman Dragon, though, it becomes the biggest pyretic ritual, cabal ritual of all time. And also you've made this gigantic dragon, which you can just sometimes kill them before t uh, doing anything else. Uh, and so this is being backed up by that core engine of galvanic iteration with unexpected windfall and now big score as well. They just printed a new windfall. Uh, so yeah, there are eight of those in standard and that pairing of iteration and big sort is going to be with us until i think september 2023 so get used to, to that play pattern um, <laughs> in the meantime so you're, you're doing that uh and then you have leer as a way to just recast all the small things that you've targeted your dragon with and then build up to this this big combo turn and when this deck goes off it goes off and it looks like one of the coolest decks you've ever seen and also not something you should be able to do in a mid-rangey standard format and so we had one of my teammates uh tristan qualifying for this pt and potentially locking up a world slot in the process with this uh this dragonstorm deck uh, is my favorite moniker for it uh, other team members really hitting the ground running in terms of refining that and so our theory of the format coming in was well this dragon deck is kind of fucked up we should be playing this uh until proven otherwise and that is what many of of the team have ended up settling on with a few uh new spicy additions in there as well but for a lot of other people the the question to solve for this tournament is how does my esper deck go bigger than the other esper decks without getting gone bigger over by like five color cami war nonsense or what have you at the mm -hmm. same time I've seen that comedy war deck. It is hilarious. <laughs> it's very cute. I I think that, yeah. I mean, I'm looking and and you chose to register Esper rather than this uh, Dragonstorm combo deck. Uh, and yeah, I'm looking at the cards that you've chosen to put into your deck, and you're actually interested in engaging in the combat step as early as turn three, which I think would give these comedy war decks a, a bit of a, a a bit of a hard time. <laughs> Yeah, th this is a real choice between my heart and my head here. My heart obviously says, play the combo deck that might be busted, take the plunge with the team and uh, have some fun with this, you know, uh, go down in flames or uh, succeed in style. My head says, well, if it, like, th this deck is not a secret at this point, in part because we had team members winning tournaments with it, like the only tournaments that were taking place in the interim. And so if you want to target this deck, I think you can, and I think people should. And if they do, then maybe it makes more sense to actually go into the mid-range trenches and, and fight those fights instead. Yeah. And so you've done that with a deck that actually has, you know, two drops that can attack in Tenacious Underdog and Luminarch Aspirant. You know, this is Esper with the good cards, a playset of Wandering Emperor and a playset of Rafine Scheming Seer, which, you know, having the two drops really helps that card hit the ground running the, the turn that you cast it and has been one of the, you know, this is a format that is defined by three drops in like Fable of the Mirror Breaker and Wedding Announcements and to some extent uh, the Iganjo Saga, but just these like value three drops. And Rafine has in like every game I've seen it and been able to just keep up with those other threes and be very, very good and has flying, which is very important. Yeah, that, that was one of the early realizations uh, as we try to identify, okay, which of these new cards are actually good? Just seeing Rafine trigger in combat for the first time is okay we, we should be taking this thing seriously mm -hmm. like this card is is really impressive is it more impressive than 
Fable of the Mirror Breaker over here or this other three drop over here on balance? I, I don't know necessarily. And that's, I think that's an unresolved question until uh, this weekend. But that was one thing that kind of scared me off playing a mid-range deck in this tournament is even leaving aside the question of the people going way bigger than you and maybe too big to the point where you can show up with some amount of pressure and disdainful strokes and actually go underneath them. Uh, even if it's just a mid-range fight, well, what's, what's good in those mid-range fights, right? Like you mentioned, I'm playing Esper with the good cards. I'm playing Esper with some good cards, but <laughs> all these other mid-range decks have so many good cards that what are the best good cards? Right. And how do they line up against each other? And this is the kind of skill set which, you know, someone like Brad Nelson back in the day was really associated with, someone who could identify what matters in these uh, in these fair fights and how do you get an edge there? And our team had the the firepower to to do that, I think. And I think our Esper list, uh, there's some divergence between team members. I think it's pretty good for what it is. Uh, but on the broad question of, is this the best way to mid-range once you decide that's what you want to do? I, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. So how did you end up here as, wh why did you feel that this was the best way to mid-range? I guess is is the question that I <laughs> I want to ask. So some amount of it was just, uh, well, I can follow some team members over here or I can follow the, the Esper contingent uh, over here. Some of it was just playing Esper myself as the villain once again and seeing that th there's some stuff I don't like about this deck. But when I actually, I, my opinion of it was pretty low, but I went back and looked at the results that we were tracking and it was winning at a decent clip. And it's I think it's good to step back and look at the raw numbers sometimes without projecting too much onto them. But it's easy to get an impression of how a deck is performing that doesn't actually line up with just what the, the raw arithmetic is saying there. And so if I'm trying to just give myself the best odds, maybe I have to grit my teeth and suck it up and just play the Esper deck. And so I that's what I did. I'm playing the Esper deck. And one thing I notice, and I mean, th this may not be as big of a draw as it seems like to me, but given the fact that you have the full four disdainful strokes in your sideboard, a lot of these mid-range stew decks do not have blue in them. Like Grixis, I don't feel is a particularly great color combination in this format. And so like the Jund decks or the, the Rakdos decks or whatever. So they don't have the ability to run disdainful stroke. And I think one of the ways that I have been interested in attacking this format and have had some success with, but haven't like stuck to standard in a way that I could tell you like play this deck is playing decks with some amount of five mana spells that go over the top. I've killed people with, in particular, reanimating Velomachus Lorehold and yes. also <laughs> with Arcane Bombardment, which is uh, a little more of a gimmick than anything else, but really powerful when it works. Basically every way that I've figured out to try to like stick my head out above this mid-range stew has just been like, I think I'll play this deck in best of one because I don't want anybody to sideboard blue cards against me. And like every game, I would just be dead if my opponent had a negate or a disdainful stroke. So I don't know how much of a draw this was, but yeah, if, if it was the draw to the Esper colors, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, that, that Velomachus deck is... It's also on that list of really cool decks that I kind of wish I was playing instead. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the Disdainful Strokes are my insurance against all of those cool decks that I wish I was playing instead. And even though I do think uh, Grixis has some uh, some good stuff going for it otherwise, just being in blue, having some counter spells, uh, you can simulate some of that with a uh, discard in black or whatever. But by and large, there's no way to 
replicate that effect fully. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that is a, a draw to blue for, for many people. Sure. Uh, I also notice your two Archons of Ameria main deck. Is that an artifact of the dragon deck existing on your team and being heavily played? Or is that, I mean, it, it is just a good card, but but I'm wondering what your thought process is here. Yeah, some amount of it is just uh, trying to Brian Kibler, my teammates. Some of it is, some of it is runes, where mm-hmm. going into the last tournament uh, with Alchemy, runes was the big boogeyman there. And we, we were debating internally, is it going to be 40% of the tournament? Is it going to be 60% of the tournament? Turns out it was like 19% of the tournament or something because people figured out ways to beat it. But weirdly enough, coming into this standard format, runes was, it was a known quantity, first of all, and it was actually performing very well. And it was the deck which part of me also wanted to play until hours before uh, submission. I, I played it in the standard challenge I, on Magic Online on the day of submission just to get some final like external reps in I did see your, to make your up my mind. Place finish with runes, yeah. And so I think runes is a really good deck and it tends to be advantaged against these mid-range decks unless you're taking these steps to beta. And this is your one step that a lot of people took last time to good results. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there were a lot of Archons of Ameria in that alchemy tournament. I mean, I... I haven't seen a ton of the deck lists that people are registering. I don't know if people are going to that extent. Uh, are there other tools other than Archon, just like good, you know, removal spells or what? Like how how do you keep the runes deck from like just like outvaluing the mid range deck or getting gigantic and, and rumbling in a way that you can't, you know, you're like treasure making goblin can't deal with. A lot of it is just the cards that you would expect. You know, the the, the basic recipe is pretty good against runes and. If you want to beat runes, you can probably beat runes. And so that was kind of the same thing as the dragon deck where this this is public information, people should know about it. And in this case, people did know about it. Lots of people who I knew were qualified for the tournament were playing runes in these standard challenges. And we didn't know if that was because they think that you know this is a one deck format with runes at the top, or is it because, well, we kind of want to play some standard, so we'll play runes because that's the deck that doesn't leak any information that anyone doesn't know already. So yeah, I mean, I think Runes is, it's a really satisfying deck to play, a really intricate deck. The Mirror, once again, is just kind of an abomination, but you that's just true of this format at large. So you, you sign up for that, however. And then going back to Archon for a second, when you look at all of these mana bases in this format, mm-hmm. this is one thing the, the Arcane Bombardment deck is trying to exploit, right? Just casting <laughs> the same Cleansing Wildfire seven times in the game until your opponent has nothing left on the board anymore. No one has any basics, really. And so if you play a turn three Archon, especially on the play, your opponent is going third. They are not doing anything for quite some time unless they can get that thing off the board. So even against a matchup where you don't intend that to do something in particular, sometimes it just buys you so much time that you're you're happy having that card in your draw. Yeah, everyone's got a million pathways in their deck. Yeah, which are free untapped colored sources until an archon's in play, <laughs> right up until they're not. Yeah, yeah, and and that is one thing that is a big deal about this mid range format too. It is, I have found that a lot of the mid range matchups are heavily play draw dependent because of the mm. way these three and four mana spells immediately affect the board and then continue to do something over the course of the game. And also, if you stumble on mana, you can get buried because not only is your opponent contributing to the board, but all of their cards are contributing to powering up their later cards. So you can kind of get snowballed if you stumble. So I can see Archon being really good in that sort of scenario. 
Yeah, th this is, I, there are some good things about this format, but one of the downsides is it is so play draw dependent to an extent which I know people said this about the, the epiphany format where it's, you know, you would rather be on the play with your epiphany or mono green deck than actually get your deck choice because just that, that die roll is so important, right? And that feels like it's somehow even more extreme this time around. Mm -hmm. And so early on in testing, I had a fairly radical take on Esper that I thought, okay, I'm giving up a lot in these mid-range mirrors, but it might be good enough against the combo decks or runes or so on to be worth it. So I'll, I'll play some mirrors and, and see if that's actually true. And it was so hard to get useful data because still, despite my deck looking very different, if I was on the play, I was winning most of the games. Huh. And if I was on the draw, I was losing most of the games. And so trying to like tease out what my card choices were actually doing to the matchup was easier said than done. Right. Because everything's every single spell in this format is just like a thing that goes on the board and draws a card at some point. So it just <laughs> doesn't who knows what's happening. But having an extra yeah, man is really good. It's it's planeswalkers or it's enchantments that effectively act like planeswalkers, or it's cards like Luminarch Aspirant, where uh if you know, you can sometimes ignore that if you're on the play and they play a turn to aspirant, you have your three drop on time. If you're on the draw, though, they have aspirin into basically anything. Well, you you need to catch up real fast. And so a lot of the time, you can look at a what should be a perfectly good opening hand and think, well, if I was on the play instead, this would be Gordon. Instead, I'm not sure if I can even keep this just because like, I need to have some early line of defense or I'm just going to get buried. Mm -hmm. Can I ask your opinion on the Magda decks? I know those have been going around. A little more recently with more treasures and such being printed uh these are like the decks that play magda mm. and keeper and are trying to put treasures on the play to get a goldspan dragon or a Zeatora, i believe is his name the, yeah the jun dragon out i i think yeah these are kind of uh the wild card heading in here where the fact that you're making so many treasures means you can do some really wild things with your mana so you can be this base rule deck and splash black for Zeatora and some cyborg cards and blue for some other cyborg cards. And hey, if, if there was a reason to be in white, you could also just splash <laughs> that too. It wouldn't be that difficult. Courier's um, briefcase. Yes. So th that's a, another weird thing here, where like, because you have triomes and the, the slowlands and the pathways, the three color mana, if you're willing to slow down a little bit, is actually really good. And once you get to that point, it's fairly natural to get to uh, four colors and just the four five colors too so if you want to be doing cami war stuff then that's fine the mana is is not an issue there whereas if you just want to be some like generic two color deck you don't really have much very better mana base than anyone who's being a lot more greedy and ambitious there yep yep makes sense so any other ways to kind of reach outside of the mid-range stew you know we've got you know, maybe this dragon deck, maybe some big ramp deck, maybe some reanimating a, a different dragon deck and runes as well. Although in some ways that is also a mid range, you know, it's got a lot of showdown of the skulls in it. So hard to de not define that as mid rangey in some way. Are there any aggro decks that are effective? Like, do we think mono white is acceptable or, you know, got a lot of good cards, but how is that positioning in the format? I think you can show up with mono white, but the the incentives just aren't really there to do that at the moment. Where uh, first of all, all the black decks have some number of Raven Feeblemen, just because you know trying to keep up with Rafine uh, on the draw and so on. You you need that card to do that, and so you get a lot of splash damage from uh, people who are hating on the generic uh, mid range decks. 
On top of that, all of the, the cards we've mentioned, right, the, the things that snowball this advantage on the board, they clog up the ground very quickly to the point where if you're on the draw against a winning announcement or a fable or uh, I mean, just fill in the blank with whatever you want, mm-hmm. um, that ground is going to get so clogged up that your mopey uh, ho- Usher of the Fallen or Hopeful Initiate is going to have a real hard time actually accomplishing anything uh, past a certain point. And so unless you can go really fast and... You know, Mono White is a deck that really does benefit from being on the play, like everything else. And you have access to, I think Thalia is a good disruptive tool. You have your own Archons, your own Spellbinders. I could see it, but not shock me if someone makes a deep run uh, with Mono White. But I think you, you know, if the game goes long, then you have to settle in for this this real struggle. Yeah. And I guess like an aggro deck and you're, you're great on the play, but you're kind of medium on the draw. Like you could just be playing one of the other mid-range decks that is great on the play, kind of medium on the draw, but then has the ability to grind in any game that like goes long where, you know, you might have more points of weakness in the mono white deck then since, you know, Luminarch Aspirin on the draw just isn't the best card. And if you are just trying to use it to 20 your opponent as quickly as possible, some number of games, you're just going to uh, get stopped. Mm-hmm. And also add a uh, Meat Hook Massacre and not having access to Faceless Haven into the mix. And I, I can see some serious problems with the strategy there. To me, it always felt like Mono White just didn't have a closer. Uh, like, no one's really playing that equipment from Zendikar, the Skyclave, the name. All the Skyclaves. Yeah, and actually, I did want to mention that I did see that in, like, a third place list in one of these challenges, and it seemed really smart to me because I think flying is very, very good in the format right now. Yes. Well, you basically, if you're, you can reach a point really commonly in Mono White where you're just out of stuff to do. You're done. You can't really make headway on their board. And your opponents are like five or whatever, but you know you've lost. Uh, and you need something to change that dynamic. Mm-hmm. Uh, Faceless Haven was really good at that sort of thing because it allowed you to do that without giving up anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you don't have access to that, I felt like Mall of Skyclaves is something you could play. And I haven't seen a lot of people actually doing that. Yeah. Maybe that's just the stuff I'm looking at. That makes sense. I I think if you are going to play Mono White, then Maul just seems like a way that something that you could use to break through. Uh, but I still remain a little bit skeptical based on all those other considerations. Oh, I, yeah, I do too. You get to play so many strong cards in all the other decks. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Dom, any other thoughts about Standard? Any any doubts about your deck going in? What are you most afraid of or anything like that? <laughs> what What are we thinking is going to happen out here? Oh, so many does. I'm afraid of everything. I'm afraid of uh, like the mid-range mirrors, and I'm also afraid of all of the other decks, which I, I don't quite know how I worked myself into this spot, but but here we are. Um, so fully expect to be having regrets of some kind come, uh, you know, hopefully not Friday. Hopefully we can delay those regrets until like round 15 or so on Saturday, but uh, I guess we'll see. I mean, if you have any regrets at all, it's going to be when you start playing the rounds, right? On, yeah. on Friday. <laughs> you don't often get to the middle of a turn and be like, you know what, maybe this deck wasn't the right choice. <laughs> Did, I, like, last time, I don't know if other people feel this way too, but the experience of actually playing the tournament, it, it felt like I was in this fugue state almost. Like, I was so detached from the events of the tournament itself, where normally 
right? You're at a, a big paper tournament that you care about. Uh, you're kind of immersed in mm-hmm. the physicality of the tournament hall or whatever. Maybe you had to, you travel, you travel a long way to get there. And this is the focus of your time while you're there. And once your rounds are over, like you're watching other people play their matches or maybe like a crowd is gathering around yours and and that gives you uh, uh, some some nerves or, or whatever. But this time it's just, well, okay, my round's over. I'll, uh, I'll go get some coffee. I'll go like watch Nassif's stream or something between rounds. Or I, I don't know, like it, it feels like, well, this is just another weekday, another weekend day. And the stakes don't feel like they're there automatically. The, the last round of Neon Dynasty, I got paired against Yuta Takahashi. So like, you know, defending <laughs> world champion on my worst matchup, playing for like a decent chunk of money. And despite that, it just felt like, okay, well, it's a match, right? It, it didn't have the same yeah. resonance, which is good and bad, right? It means the nerves aren't there in the same way, but it also means that feeling of elation or uh, success isn't there in quite the same way uh, either, at least for me. Sure. No, I get that totally. Is there any amount of that, like going into your deck selection choices, uh, did the fact that, hey, a 9-6 qualifies me for a Pro Tour, did that affect it at all? Did you go for any level of like consistency over spiking or? <laughs> I don't know if uh, mathematically it makes sense for that to affect oh, how you- Sure, I don't think it really does, but we let it sometimes. But psychologically, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, a little bit, I think. Um, there, there is a sense with the dragon deck of, all right, well, we, we sink or swim together or individually perhaps with this. It felt like the outcomes there are very polarized, but maybe this is uh, like the historic Velomachus deck from last year, which just annihilated everyone. Or this is this could be the dream of the combo deck that no one takes seriously that just dominates the entire tournament. Mm-hmm. Or we could show up and people are prepared and you know it's, it's a tough day for everyone. Whereas the Esper deck, you kind of know that you're fighting on the same playing field as everyone else, if that makes sense. Yeah, you're you're engaging in the format on the format's terms with the Esper deck, whereas with the Dragon deck, you're like, you're hoping that the rules of engagement are like not suited for what you brought to the table. Yeah, and that's where, in retrospect, we might find that our focus on the Dragon deck may have put us in this kind of uh, different reality from other people where if we take the deck seriously and some people are unaware that it even exists and other people test it and don't like it and it ends up being just our our people playing it in the tournament instead of being one of the most popular decks well like one thing that scared me off runes is I was just getting clobbered by my own teammates sure. with the dragon deck right so it's like what, what? how am I meant to make sense of that when this is the only information that I have, and also the only information that anyone really has. That's that's the other thing about these tournaments, is that if you're someone who like just spiked a PGQ out of nowhere, you're preparing by yourself, it is so difficult to get any useful practice in, any useful information, because there are no tournaments being held in these formats. Why would there be? And your stocked God Arena account starts at the lowest rung of the ladder, and so you have to work your way up through... I had many different opponents casting Charm Stray against me on my climb up through Historic or uh, just, you you have to slog through all of that just to get to the point where you have useful competition. And I don't know if people are going to put that time in to do that. I, it's, it seems like a waste of it to me. 
in that sense, I think those people are being set up for failure. And you saw the stats last time, people ran the numbers. The people who qualified, even in the client through Arena, just had this woeful performance because the resources weren't there. And there's no reason to think that they would be equal with their competition coming in. And even if they want to really put put the work in and, and have that self-improvement, well, they're just being told to, to fuck off and start in uh, bronze four or whatever it is. Sure. The same person responsible for that decision has to be the guy, the same guy who keeps the guy combo in historic. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, being told that the technology doesn't exist to start those accounts any higher is either either it yes e- either it's true and I'm scared for and of your developers yes or it's a lie and either way n- none of these outcomes leave me with a higher opinion of what's going on behind the curtain no there. no that sentence should not come out of it like it's much better it would be much better for you to say like yeah we could but we just don't want to and then just not do it then it's like oh okay you're just a dick but I like I get it I guess. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I've re- I read that huge experimental blog post with the matchmaking algorithms and getting to Mythic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would be surprised with the way the that works if Watsi didn't have manual adjustment power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like very surprised. I, it seems insane that they couldn't do it. Like I don't know. Not not that I am a programmer or I know how their code works, but. Couldn't you just brute force like it's like, oh, they just won all of these matches like make that happen. And then against like fake opponents and then you rank those accounts up like I mean, they they must have some kind of internal staging thing where they can create accounts and then manually mm-hmm. put them at whatever level just to see if if that whole how could you test anything properly, without so, being able to right. do that? Yeah, well, then then the legitimate excuse is that it requires to our infrastructure is such that it requires too much time to do this for every account mm-hmm. and that'd be like oh, okay i get it you know not sorry Still sucks to be in bronze pretty bad but yeah all right anything else you want to let us know before we wrap this episode up any final thoughts on the prep process or this final uh arena set championship well uh, thank you for having me back in here again and giving me this opportunity to just uh vent and also <laughs> just talk about the preparation with someone outside of my squad who i love dearly but uh it's it's good to see some other faces <laughs> past a certain point you know <laughs> yeah instead of being locked in a discord with them you can be in this discord with us perfect hell yeah also you know it helps because i haven't even watched a historic game since the previous set championship <laughs> so <laughs> and you might not watch them this time around who knows <laughs> uh i probably will i mean not much else going on. Yeah. At least on Sunday. We we just had a huge COVID spike in North Carolina. So uh, such championship sounds like a good weekend activity. Yeah, it might not be uh, the perfect time to relax some of those, uh, you know, health requirements or whatever at any uh, <laughs> local gatherings. But yeah, um, but no one would do that, right? Nah, no, nah, no, absolutely not. Yeah, but I, I wish I could tell you that you ought to be more excited about this tournament. And if you just give it a chance, you're going to love it. I can't really do that. But uh, hopefully you tune in and, and have a good time. I, if you or someone else I know in the tournament is doing well, I will be excited to tune in and root actively. I agree. I will at least have it on in the background, and then I will engage whenever one of my faves is on screen. And winning, hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> I don't want to curse them. 
Well, what if they're someone you just can't stand and they're doing well and you're, you're rooting for them to, to fail on the big stage in their moment of, uh, of heartbreak? There's so not a lot of people that I can't has, stand anymore. <laughs> that has happened to me before. Uh, but it's very few and far between. So I don't think that'll be the case here. Okay, okay. I, I certainly, like, have a preference in most matches of, like, you know... I have just a generalized ranking of all people I've ever met, and it's some people I like more than some people I like less. And if you're higher on the list, then I want you to win. But uh, I'm generally not fueled by like an intense hatred of any individual person. You don't have to run to your room to grab the master list and see where the ranking is. No, that lives in my head and is constantly being adjusted. So if you want to go up on the list, Patreon subscriptions, great way to <laughs> increase your ranking. A nice tweet about an episode we did is really great too. Or even just like a nice tweet at me in general is, is you know, that'll get you some points. You know, if you're interested. Reading a recommended book. Reading a recommended book is great. We got a lot of people reading our uh, books that we recommended on the last podcast. So that that actually was really nice to hear. And, and I hope people enjoy those books. And it's cool to, you know, share in experiences like that. So, yeah, I think that's it for us this week. Dom, I mean, you thanked us. But honestly, it is just always a huge pleasure to have you here. So thank you so much for stopping by. We really appreciate your knowledge and just being able to chat with you. Yeah, anytime. If you want to find us on social media, I am tweeting from at CCR underscore Grindcast. Lee is also on Twitter. I am at Lee McLeo. Dom, where can people find you? I know you're still writing for StarCityGames.com, right? Yeah, it's uh, just me and Shaheen uh, holding up the fort there in terms of... <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Say, there terms... was... Well, so, I and I only mentioned this because I noticed the headline of the article before New Capenna was released, but the it was like a limited article that was like, the best archetype in New Capenna Limited is, and it was talking about like green treasures or red green treasures, which is a, has turned out to be a wildly unplayable draft archetype. Like if you have drafted this, you have fucked up. But my understanding is there are like, 1.5 playable archetypes ah. in New Capenna <laughs> Limited, which, uh, and most of those are two color archetypes, which seems like it should not be the case in a, in a three color set. But to be fair, that's also kind of true of the set's impact on Constructed, right? <laughs> There's not even like a, a Siege Runner or a Mantis Rider or a Jeskai Ascendancy to really be the, the headliner in that sense. It's, oh, hey, here's Ledger Shredder in seven <laughs> yes. different Constructed formats, which incidentally is the subject of my topic this week, or subject of my article, excuse me. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Great transition. Yeah, that's, how you, that's how you get the uh, the Obscura, I think that guild is. That's how you get their mechanic in Constructed Magic Forever. You just put it on the best card in the set. Oh, yes, and put it on like, a... What is Kanai? You mean <laughs> yeah. just like, I loot? <laughs> nope, it's better. Yeah, it, it turns it, this thing into a 3-5 real quick. <laughs> you could very easily reword the connive mechanic to remove any reference to this set on ledger shredder and i don't think anything would really change in terms of how easy it was to pass or anything uh tom tom gets to finish his his plugs oh Probably yeah no finish it. finish your plugs up i don't think we did <laughs> we let you do any Yo, of them <laughs> barely even began yeah so uh find me on twitter uh, at dom and javier uh, you can find the podcast i do with ari lax focusing on modern uh most weeks, uh, we took a week off last week because I lost my voice, which is an impediment to podcasting as it turns out, but uh, should be back on a regular 
schedule now. Uh, you can find that on whatever podcast app you're listening to this on, hopefully, and also find it on uh, Twitter dom- at Dominaria underscore pod or uh, on Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash Dominaria underscore judgment. I think. Yeah, we'll go with that. We'll figure it out. If you get to one of the other socials, you can find out where the modern podcast Patreon is for sure. Yeah, there is a link tree that will solve all your issues for you. Yes. Uh, I got to get on making an actual link tree. And I can highly recommend the, I, I think I did last time you were on, but can highly recommend the Dominaria's Judgment podcast. My life was less complete when y'all were on hiatus and things are, are back to the way they should be now. I made them say my name in their first episode back. It was great. <laughs> the goal. I mean, it could have been another Lee, but I don't know how many of those are that magic. Yep. I think that's it for us. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great week. Bye. Bye.